segue there, Richard. This is hell. Richard, who are the artists who perform Batshit Crazy? Sophie and Tucker. Sophie and Tucker. I just like, I don't know where I've been for the last three years, but I just discovered them. <laughs> and they are like this amazing, like Euro dance clubby kind of duo band. Sophie uh, and Tucker. Yeah, T U K K E R. All right. That's pretty cool. I'll have to look into it. They're actually American, but they kind of have some European roots or whatever. Influences. EDM. Absolutely. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. If you have not heard the horrible breaking news. The United States has gone to war. Okay, it's not all that breaking because the United States went to war around 20 years ago, but me saying the U.S. has gone to war might have scared the hell out of you because, like me, every day you probably forget all the wars the United States is in right now and has been since the forever war started as a response to 9-11. Yep, the strategic decisions made by leaders in the United States government following 9-11, often with bipartisan support, has been to sink the world into a global war that has no end and is being fought right now in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, Uganda, Mozambique, Iraq, Syria, Pakistan, and who knows where else, as the forever war includes drone wars and secret wars that are completely hidden from all of us. So, if we got so many wars going on, what happened to the anti-war movement? You know, the anti-war movement that held the largest worldwide protests in human history right before the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq? Where are all those people who seem so adamant about stopping a war they knew they were being lied into? Well, unbelievably, a lot of them now have a favorable view of the president who lied us into that war, President George W. Bush, after four years of shock and awe by the Trump administration, seems to have left liberals with political PTSD. But the forever war is a different kind of war that the anti-war movement did not seem prepared to protest. The problem is, according to today's guests, the anti-war crowd was not willing to address the real force driving all of the wars the U.S. is currently engaging in, and that is imperialism. And I bet you thought I was going to say capitalism. But it's that, too, of course, as the two brutal processes always go hand in hand. And we'll consider how the left could challenge imperialism in a few when we speak with Jonathan Ellis and Brian Bean, who co-wrote the RampantMag.com article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era. Uh, Jonathan is an Atlanta-based socialist activist who is passionate about food justice, black liberation, and internationalism. He is a member of Community Movement Builders. Brian is a member of the Rampant Editorial Collective and an editor and contributor to the book Palestine, a Socialist Introduction, which is from Haymarket Books. We'll also have some listener feedback, breaking news out of Brazil from our friend Brian Meir. And more of your answers to this week's question from Mel. And we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. If it is Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. How are you, Richard? How are you doing? What's new in your nape of the neck? Uh, I'm well. I just feel like I'm in one of those Twilight Zone episodes in the void where, you know, you're never going to get out. No, that seems happy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I mean, mentally I'm okay. It's just, you know, the whole pandemic thing. But I am looking forward to it raining more. <laughs> hey, uh, real quick. Because I did so much gardening last year, I want those. Uh, you want everything to come up? Yeah, exactly. Are you growing any vegetables or just? No, nah, no, nah, just uh, I put some new plants in, some new shrubs, and I put some bulbs, scattered some bulbs around my yard. And... Have, do you uh, have a date yet for your vaccination? I do not. Um, I do. I I saw that. That's fantastic. I am supposed to be vaccinated tomorrow immediately after the show. I have no idea if that's actually going to happen or not. And is that locally here? Uh, Yeah, just over here in River Park, uh, over like 5100 North uh, Francisco, so over by California and uh, Foster. But yeah, so the thing about it is the reason that I qualify is I fall under the category disability otherwise not mentioned. 
So I don't know how I'm going to prove that I have this disability. I don't know what I what the process is with this. It seems like everybody could qualify for that. <laughs> right? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Uh, but more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? Yes, this week's question from hell is, so what's the name of your podcast? So what's the name of your podcast? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, as it has been for the last year, your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. And there's the trucker's cap. There's the winner's hat. Winner hat. There's the coffee mug. There's a tote bag. There's a t-shirt. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it at us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. So what's the name of your podcast? So what's the name of your podcast? And the clock in this room, I never had to fix because uh, for daylight savings time because I never uh, fixed it for falling backwards. Wah, wah. So, <laughs> look at that. It's actually working. Uh, two weeks ago today, we read an email from Courtney that was sent to us at chuck at com. You can go back to our March 9th show to hear the entire email. But more than anything that we talked about during that week of shows, Courtney's email had the biggest impact on me. And I discussed that on the most recent Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. It's probably because what she wrote touches on something we've discussed here on This Is Hell from its very beginning. And that is, as Courtney asked, asked what is some valuable advice for young people trying to live compassionate lives under capitalism? Courtney then says a little later, I am certain I would much rather end my life than perpetuate the suffering of other people and or animals, but see no way forward without doing so. And Courtney ended with, I do not want to be complicit or active in bringing harm to others. I'm terrified of seeing the oppressor in the mirror. Any advice, personal or general, is extremely appreciated. Sincerely, Courtney. We then posed that question to international peace activist Kathy Kelly as the question from hell during, during our interview with Kathy on our last Thursday show. And Kathy told us that we cannot avoid being complicit in capitalism and war. But if you want to do good, Kathy gave the absolutely brilliant yet simple solution of finding people who are feeding other people and join that community. It's brilliant because if you do not want to participate in capitalism, doing something for free and giving something for free is really the best place to start. We also got an email from Martin who mentions Courtney's email writing, Dear Chuck, I haven't really thought of your show as a self-help podcast. I didn't either, Martin, but you know, when you get an email like Courtney's, what are you going to do? But after listening to you read an email from a listener who asked you for advice on what to do with their life, I figured it couldn't hurt to send this email and hopefully get your perspective. For context, I'm the listener who answered a question from hell by saying that the best part of 2020 for me was traveling down to Springfield, Illinois to visit my nieces. Here's my dilemma. I want my nieces, who will turn 7, 8, and 9 in a few months, to grow up to be kind, caring, compassionate people. I want them to be accepting of everyone regardless of their race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, or lack thereof, etc. The problem is that because they had to move to Springfield freaking Illinois, I don't see them nearly as often as I used to, so my opportunities to be a role model for them in that respect is limited. Furthermore, I'm not their uncle in a biological or legal sense. I'm an uncle by choice, so I'm not really in the family, as it were. With those obstacles in mind, any advice you or your listeners could offer would be appreciated. Best, Martin. Well, damn it, Martin, quit making us into an advice show. Okay, look, everybody... Courtney's request for advice is a question that we have been considering on This Is Hell since this show began. How can we both make life worth living while, in order to survive in our current world, you have to contribute to and be complicit in its and your own destruction? Martin, that is something that has consumed me and a good portion of the content of our show over low these past 25 years. But family advice? I got nothing other than what I should do with all my nephews and nieces, and that is see and talk and write to them as much as possible in any way I can. And no, I likely will not heed my own advice, because who has the time? And that sucks, so sorry. I couldn't help you. 
but this is not an advice podcast, and I'm not a very good person to look for advice from. We also got an email that did not ask for advice this week, but instead offered a suggestion. Hillary writes, Dear Chuck and Alex, thank you for the many, many years of hell. I've learned so much from your show, and I'm not depressed yet. I think your listeners would like to hear about Enbridge and the Line 3 pipeline that water protectors are currently battling for us in Minnesota. This is yet another story of racist, colonial, misogynist resource extraction happening right now and just up the road from Chicago. Indigenous women are at the forefront of the never-ending struggle and need to be heard. Please consider interviewing these important activists about this. You and your listeners will be blown away and energized by their power. And then she suggests that we interview either Tara... Hauska, a tribal attorney and founder of the Jinu Collective, G-I-N-I-W, and Taisha Martineau from Camp Megizzi and the Gichigumi Scouts. Hillary adds, keep doing what you do. All the best, Hillary. Thanks, Hillary. I've been waiting to do more coverage of indigenous actions against climate change, which are absolutely incredible. So we will definitely follow up on your suggestions. And if anyone has suggestions for who we can talk to about even Line 5, the Enbridge line going under the Mackinac Bridge, which Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer has ordered terminated because of past noncompliance issues when it comes to Enbridge addressing safety concerns. You, too, can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell coming up if you want to stop the forever war the U.S. is currently engaging in all over the world then you got to stop U.S. imperialism. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from Al, which is, so what's the name of your podcast? So what's the name of your podcast? As well as breaking news from Brian Muir in Brazil, and we'll be sharing that with you, as well as who will be on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. This is hell. The United States is at war. We need every one of us to say that each and every day we wake up and the U.S. is at war in this forever war, so we quit normalizing and tolerating it instead of trying to end the war that may never end if we don't do something about it. But as our guests will argue, the only way we can get out of endless war after war is to finally address U.S. imperialism. Here to tell us what that means for anyone who's just sick and tired of all this war, Jonathan Ellison Brian Bean co-wrote the RampantMag.com article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Jonathan. Hello. Jonathan is an Atlanta-based socialist activist who is passionate about food justice, black liberation, and internationalism. He is a member of Community Movement Builder Builders. And welcome to This Is Hell, Brian. Is Brian there? Yep. Yep. Thanks for having me, Chuck. How's it going? (laughs) Good, good. Brian is a member of the Rampant Editorial Collective and an editor and contributor to the book Palestine, a socialist introduction from Haymarket Books. So let's do this in alphabetical order. We'll start with you, Brian. You and Jonathan write the rot of U.S. gun culture connected with the affliction of mass shootings as intimately tied to the imperial order present and past, as this is obviously in all of the headlines in today's papers. The headline today's New York Times being about the 18 who've been killed in the two mass shootings in Atlanta and Boulder. Brian, how do you see the shootings in Atlanta and Boulder as being tied to U.S. imperialism? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about the relationship with gun culture and the fact that to prop that up ideologically, there is just continual praise of the military. Um, You know, every sporting event, there's gratuitous um, sort of laudatory phrasing about the troops and sort of all this and all that. And that just seeps into sort of the the consciousness. I think, um, you know, that's something that's tied to things. Um, but Atlanta, I think it's a special case because of course, the way in which that was a, um, example of anti-Asian racism. And you look at the amount of just anti-China hysteria that has been whipped up, um, since Obama, but I think it reached a certain peak under Trump. Um, we see it with the sort of, uh, stuff about how 
the COVID pandemic is just like a Chinese plot and just continual um, anti-China hysteria on the pages of liberal newspapers, not just Fox News. And, you know, that just seeps into the consciousness of folks like the person who carried out the unfortunate massacre in Atlanta. So, Jonathan, you and Brian also write that Joe Biden, President Biden, will continue to turn up the heat on China. And this poses the most dangerous competitive theater for imperialist conflict, which we'll get to in a moment. He will maintain the trade war tariffs imposed by Trump and attempt through carrot and stick diplomatic measures to shore up regional allies to counter Chinese hegemony. In Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's first major address since taking office, he outlined the administration's foreign policy vision of on virtually every front focus on adversarial competition with China as the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. At the same time, Biden has continued with the military chest thumping of naval exercises in the South China Sea by U.S. vessels just as antagonistically as Trump's administration did. So, Jonathan, my question for you then is we have heard over and over in the media again that connect Trump connecting China to the virus, referring to it as the China virus, is the main driving force, it seems, of the anti-Asian uh, and Pacific Islander uh, violence that we're seeing here in the United States. How much do you think that that violence isn't just driven by Trump saying China virus, but driven by the imperialist policies of the United States when it comes to China? Um, I think I think I think it has uh, to do with both. Uh, definitely Donald Trump, I think, escalated um, the violence against like, you know, Asian-Americans just just from his comments, like you said, the the China virus and even. And even seeing like right wing conspiracies that, you know, that say like, oh, like literally the Chinese government made the virus and like intentionally infected us with it. And so that type of language combined with the already pre-existing xenophobia in people, right, who automatically connect China with Asian-Americans, like even if you've you know been here for years, I mean, if you have this like, you know, nationalistic white supremacist mindset you know, you're going to put two and two together. Um, and we have to not forget that, you know, hate crimes didn't just start with Trump. You know, we live in a racist society. Uh, this country was founded on slavery, founded on the oppression of, uh, you know, people of color. So what Trump did, he he escalated it with his comments and with some of with a lot of the xenophobic things he said, um, combined with this, like, you know, American nationalism, um, you know, going against China. So I think those two things combined created conditions um, for, you know, for the rising of hate crimes, because, you know, hate crimes were happening before, but now they've like escalated since the pandemic. So what do you think we miss then, Jonathan, when we only focus on the Trump aspect of that, when we when we ignore the imperialism and we ignore the hate crimes that were already happening prior to Trump being in office? Well, we miss a systemic critique, right? So if you're just thinking, oh, it's just Trump, then you might think, well, everything will be fine under a Democrat like Biden, which, you know, which you, it won't be. Uh, and, and so we're not looking at even a Democratic Party as complicit in all of this because we're thinking of just the like just explicit, you know, blatant racism of like Republicans and kind of covering up kind of like even some of the Democrats own policies and even and even rhetoric and even a Biden's like rhetoric to me has been very nationalistic, maybe more so than Obama. I don't I don't I don't remember. Maybe Brian could speak on this, but it seems like he's more nationalist and more like uh, aggressive than even like Obama uh, was. And so I think we have to look at it systemically, not just at, you know, from from a nationalist perspective, but also internationally. Right. Um, American imperialism and, and its effects around people around the world. And, you know, you can even go back to the 60s and 70s and the bombings campaigns all throughout, you know, Southeast Asia, um, you know, propaganda against, you know, various, you know, different nations at various different times throughout our history and the treatment of Asian immigrants uh, in this country throughout history. You know, I think all of, all of that needs to be connected. And uh, Brian, you and Jonathan also write about the problem of this logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And while Jonathan was replying to that question, I started thinking about that, but not applied in the way that 
you are doing it when you see nations that are the enemy of the United States necessarily being your friend. I started thinking about it when it comes to the left and the Democratic Party. The, <laughs> the left might view, you know, the Democratic Party is the enemy of my enemy, the Republican Party, so they must be my friend. What does the left miss when they see the enemy of their enemy being their friend in the Democratic Party? I mean, I think this gets back to the stuff that Jonathan was saying. Um, a lot of people want to talk about Trump and all the bad stuff that he did, which is real, as though it was somehow an aberration, um, not the escalation of, of hate and sort of violence as being something that's what the system does. Um, and so in the question of China, you know, the pivot to Asia policy was started under Obama, in which after the end of the Cold War, the U.S. was looking at a possible unipolar world where it could have the U.S. capitalists have the best access to the best resources and the best markets and all that. Um, and then when there was the economic crash, 2007, 2008, uh, China started doing quite well because of decisions that they, that they made. And so competition with China, and, and that means economically, it also means militarily, is something that was initiated in a in a exacerbated way under under Obama. Um, Trump continued that, and Biden, who really models himself in kind of Obama 2.0, and did that during his campaign. I think it's why he he was elected. Has carried out that policy. The thing is that the the way that Trump exacerbated it is part of a continual shift right in American politics, and so. Biden being sort of more nationalistic, like Jonathan was saying, is because the way in which the Democrats continually allow the dial to be shifted by, by the Republicans, um, and, and that's where we're at where we are. Uh, the systemic is, critique is important because um, that's how we see how both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are both parties of capital, um, and that means that they carry out capital's bidden. And that means that they try to make a stable business climate um, overseas for the U.S. capitalist class and compete with uh, other capitalist classes of other countries. Um, and so it's a, it's a bipartisan project. And until we see it that way, we misunderstand uh, how it works and what drives it. Misunderstanding what drives it means that, that, that progressives and people set up to see uh, imperialism and war as purely like foreign policy that is the decisions of, of political actors, independent of systems of power, of money, of, of, of capitalist control. Well, let me just follow up with you on that, Brian. Uh, so there, we've been asking guests this week about a phrase that you always hear governments, whether here in the United States, whether it's run by Democratic Party or the Republican Party, when it comes to war, they or the brink of war, they say that we are interested in protecting U.S. business interests, which then I think people mm -hmm. translate in their head. They're protecting their jobs. They're protecting their wallet. They're protecting the economy. So we've been asking guests this week, Brian, they never say what they are. What do you think the U.S. business interests are overseas? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, whole, that's a whole talk, Chuck. Um, but I think that there's a couple layers to that. Um, the first is uh, connections to natural resources. And so if you look at what drives U.S. business interests in the Middle East, a large part of that is access to oil, which is, of course, capitalism's favorite fuel. Um, I think the other is access to trade and favorable trade deals. And so if you look at the competition with China over sort of trade deals, the whole idea was to bring uh, the countries uh, bordering China into sort of uh, the U.S. American influence. And that allows for investment flows that benefit U.S. capitalists, uh, that allows for best prices for, for resources and that sort of stuff. Um, and so you see that a lot also in uh, the African continent in which China is making a big ploy to, uh, to uh, invest in um, uh, infrastructure. And that means making the business deals, and that means being able to have access to uh, the natural resources on the African continent. And so that's one way that they're carrying that out as well. Jonathan, uh, you and Brian also write that uh, you quote Boris Johnson saying, America is back, proclaimed British Prime Minister Boris Johnson roughly a month after the inauguration of Joe Biden. Johnson's childish hurrah is a summation of Joe Biden's presidential promise to restore U.S. leadership on the world stage. His promise of leadership was realized on February 26th when Biden, without congressional approval, carried out airstrikes on an alleged military installation of Iranian-backed Iraqi militias in eastern Syria with the delivery of 7,500-pound 
drone bombs. Biden's attack killed 22 people in retaliation for a rocket attack on a U.S. military base in Iraq 11 days prior. And you write of Biden's uh, uh, strike in Syria. In addition to his embrace of the U.S. tradition of bombing the Middle East, Biden also presented himself throughout his campaign as out-toughing Trump with aggressive stances on China. The stance reflects the continuation and sharpening of an anti-China strategy by the United American ruling class and fits into the emergence of a new Cold War between the two powers over the past three years. So yesterday, uh, Jonathan, we're talking to urban planning and policy scholar Karina Moreno about an article that she has at Jacobin, which uh, she had headlined reforming immigration, reaffirming exploitation about Biden's policies when it comes to immigration. And Katrina writes that immigrants of the new lawful prospective immigrant status in order to attain citizenship are to endure now eight years of application fees, background checks, digital surveillance, local police interactions that may land them in detention, eight years with the threat of parole hanging over their head, eight years of scrutiny on their paying taxes, exclusion from political participation, and exclusion from full civil rights. Jonathan, whether it's military actions or immigration, is that kind of stance also what you see as Biden's attempts at out-toughing Trump? And does Biden need to out-tough Trump to get political support? Yeah, oh, that was a lot. Um, yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes I answer my questions got really long, but I just want to make sure that you understand <laughs> understood the context within I was you know describing this whole get tough stance because it just bothers me. I just don't understand why it's necessary. Is it necessary? Maybe it is necessary for public support. I don't think it's necessary for public support, you know, but it might be necessarily necessary if you're an establishment politician, right? Um, you know, Joe Biden isn't like, I mean, I wouldn't consider him a progressive, let, let alone like a, you know, like a reformist like Bernie Sanders is. I mean, Biden is like, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to see the difference uh, a lot of times between Democrats and Republicans, it's, it, particularly on the questions of like the imperialism, right? Um, you know, they might be different in, in, in rhetoric, but even even Biden and his kind of like, I'm going to be tough stance, you know, uh, we're going to be hard like this, like this, you know, America needs to be strong, you know, um, which is which is something, that, you know, unfortunately, for whatever reason, the United States has the we produce all the weapons, we have all the nuclear weapons, we have bases everywhere. And for some reason, the American public or certain sectors of the American public are being, you know, trained to think we're not strong enough. <laughs> like, and we're literally the world's bullies, like literally the head imperialist power in the entire world. And so then when Democrats and Republicans are trying to out tough each other, it just, you know, it's like, it's like a race to the bottom. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's really, it's really screwing. Like uh, it really, it's kind of hard to understand, especially from my perspective. Like, is this really necessary? But, you know, if you want to be the top capitalist, you kind of have to be, you know, brutal and you kind of have to keep your position. Uh, you don't want to lose that position. And I don't want to lose this, uh, the focus on imperialism. Brian, you, both you and uh, Jonathan write about how too often we think of U.S. imperialism as something that happens over there, out of sight and out of mind. Do we need to recognize how U.S. imperialism acts at home for us to challenge and address U.S. imperialism? And if we do, how does U.S. imperialism manifest itself in our daily lives? Yeah, I mean, I think that it would definitely be helpful um, to to sort of have people understand that imperialism isn't just bombs over there. Um, at the same time, I also think that um, you know folks having more understanding about what the United States does abroad is also very important. Um, but I think that the notion of imperialism as a, as a system um, is one that really comes back home. Um, and so, you know, the ten percent of all American manufacturing goes into the buildings of arms, and so that is you know what what the country builds, what the resources are devoted to spending. And so looking around at uh, the sort of pandemic atmosphere when people have so little and 
you know, they're debating in Congress whether or not you're going to get this or that a small amount to tide you over for a month or two. They're churning out these massive amounts of weapons of war that are going abroad to murder people. Um, and the idea that this connected to our well-being here, I think is super, super essential. I think also in talking about immigration, like understanding what is driving uh, the migrant crisis internationally as being decisions that capitalist powers make about economic issues and the way in which war affects that, that drives um, people trying to, at great adverse conditions, trek across Mexico, take boats across the Mediterranean, like to understand what drives that. And it's not just, oops, there's catastrophe, but it's catastrophe that is the product of the planned interventions of world capitalism is something that I think could, should, um, people should grab their heads around and we should organize around and agitate like in every quarter. Jonathan, you and Brian also write that while the drone war is the most visible aspect of the forever war, the breadth of U.S. imperialism globally is massive. The United States has over 800 military bases in 70 countries. U.S. special forces are deployed in various countries, with 4,000 being deployed weekly in the Middle East region, while others wage secret wars in Africa. So the forever war has now been with us for over 20 years and has been fought in several countries. Currently, the U.S. military is engaged in what Wikipedia determines are wars in Afghanistan, Somalia, Uganda, Mozambique, Iraq, Syria, drone strikes in Pakistan and elsewhere. And I know that that list is incomplete, and I feel horrible for not knowing everywhere the United States is currently at war. But that's kind of my point. You and Brian are very critical of the anti-war movement, which there doesn't seem to be one here in the United States, and the left's inability to have an anti-war movement. So, Jonathan, can the left be blamed for not posing an effective anti-war movement when these wars are, many of them, secret? Well, to, to a certain extent, right? Um, obviously, I don't think the the left could kind of create an anti-war movement out of nothing, you know, especially like you said, when the, a lot of the war is, is secret. But in, in reality, a lot of the war isn't secret is just, you know, when you watch the the television, they don't really talk about it, right? A lot of the stuff, you know, you could, you know, I've gone the news every day about, you know, different strikes and different things the United States is doing, but you'll never hear it on like MSNBC that like, oh, the United States, you know, killed 10 people today in Somalia. You know, you, you just won't hear it. You know, you would have to go on the internet. Um, but I think also a part of the problem is perspective. So I will I will blame the left for for that as far as us kind of looking at imperialism as only through, you know, certain, you know, very explicit actions that the United States might take overseas. So like in Iraq or in Afghanistan, right, which were which are kind of exceptions to the rule. Right. Most U.S. imperialism doesn't look like Iraq or, or Afghanistan. Um, and so like, if you're, if your only kind of perspective around imperialism is that if you're looking out for war in that, it, um, like, like Iraq or Afghanistan, then your activism and the things that you do are going to be tailored towards things that look like they could start in Iraq or Afghanistan type war. Then of course, you're kind of ignoring pretty much everything else and kind of really overlooking a systemic critique of the imperialist system as a whole. Um, and then you're not looking for like maybe other creative ways to, to do quote unquote anti-war stuff. That's not just front facing protests, you know, or, or rallies when there's a scare that there might be another war. This, Could I add something to that Chuck? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I, I definitely don't think that the wars being secret are the reason why the left can't build a movement. Um, I mean, you know, you just mentioned you can look at Wikipedia and find this stuff. Um, but I, I just want to underline something that Jonathan said, and that, that I think that the inability to build a movement is related to strategic decisions the left has made. And the most important of those is that there was a movement against the war in Iraq, um, less so against Afghanistan, but in Iraq, that was fairly sizable. And that movement decided to shift into supporting the supposed anti-war candidates in the Democratic Party under Kerry Obama and completely demobilize while the wars continued. And so 
the movement shrank to basically nothing in which the, the fragments of the anti-war movement were carried by small left groups that many of their politics were connected to supporting, you know, foreign dictators um, paired with fighting against imperialism. And so I think that the, the shrinkage of the movement came from a strategic decision to back the Democratic Party um, and then some bad strategies afterwards. I think it's a strategic and political problem that the left has that we need to try to dig ourselves out of. So, Brian, then what explains to you why people did believe, why did Democrats believe that Barack Obama was this anti-war candidate when he explicitly said that he was not? He said that if there were terror suspects in a nation like Pakistan, would he go against their sovereignty to go after those terrorists? He said he would. He said this months before. He said this during the primaries. So why, Brian, was there this impression what what caused us is was it the enemy of my enemy is my friend again? What caused Democrats to believe Barack Obama was anti-war? I mean, that's a great question, um, and I don't have a, a great answer to that. Um, but I think part of it, and this actually jives with the current Biden situation, is how bad Bush was made anything that seemed better to seem be a breath of fresh air, um, because you know Bush carried out. Uh, illegal wars and openly lied about stuff and is a war criminal who should be prosecuted. Um, and because o- Obama, you know, said some things that made it seem as though it was better, he took over and actually instrumentalized and legalized the war of terror uh, in, in a way. And I think some of the stuff is Biden. You know, Biden's not Trump. Trump is a bellicose villain. And Biden on surface may appear to be better than that, even though many of the same long-term strategic focuses and being connected to the capitalist class is totally the same. And so I think it's, I think it's something like that, sort of lesser evilism played out again. And Jonathan, now we see Democrats, uh, when they're being polled, have a 60%, near 60% approval rating for President George W. Bush and his presidency, his administration, the, the guy who lied people into war. And so you both write about how it seems that liberals have abandoned any kind of anti-war movement. Do you think that that is what happened with uh, Barack Obama? Did that lead to the abandonment of an anti-war movement? Why why are all of a sudden liberals abandoning anti-war? I mean, yeah, definitely. I think that that plays a part in it. Uh, it's kind of like narrow... Like this, like it's almost like uh, people are kind of forgetting, you know, what like they're forgetting history, like as, as it as it's being lived, you know. Um, liberals are, you know, so concerned with kind of just getting the next Democrat in office, they're kind of foregoing, I guess, supposed principles uh, that you know that they say they have. Um, you know, I mean, even even with this administration, I mean, if you look at a lot of the things they're still pursuing. Uh, it's not different than the Trump administration and kind of like liberals kind of ignore that and will say, well, you know, you're, you're only helping the Republicans when you say that or give them time, you know. Uh, we're always told to give, you know, presidents time. Um, and we know that, that that never works out. It does not work out. Brian, you and Jonathan write that the general trajectory of U.S. imperialism may involve some small strategic pivots, but the overall course of domination, support for despotic regimes, infinite war on terror, omnipresent bases, and dangerous brinksmanship with China remains. And this all comes with bipartisan support. Every day we're told politics in the United States are more divisive than ever, that Republicans and Democrats are actually self-segregating, moving to areas where they can live with their own kind, and the Fox News and MSNBC crowd speaking entirely different languages, practically. We have fascists fighting anti-fascists in the street. If everything's so divisive, Brian, why not on foreign policy? Um, Well, uh, this guy named Karl Marx said that the state was the committee for managing the joint interests of the ruling class. Um, and I think that is, is what we see there. So there's division about how to rule, um, but the ruling and ruling for whom, which is the capitalist class, is, I think, something that is shared by the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, and so I think that that is manifest most obviously in, in imperialism and overseas, uh, because that's, that's where they're oriented. That makes 
that makes sense. I think that sort of dovetails to, to your previous question to Jonathan, too, in which I think a lot of why, you know, liberals seem more of a disagreement or things being different um, has to do with how war has changed. And so I think that we haven't caught up to the notion that I think many people still hold that war is something that, you know, you get congressional approval for, and then you take a bunch of guys and you put them in a boat and you send them over somewhere and then they do something and they come back home. And like war is not fought like that anymore. Like the, the, the total forever war that we described in the article that you're mentioning is something that is happening now. You know, there are, there are drones and assassinations and planned assassinations and all types of stuff all around the world at this very moment. And so I think reconceptualizing that this is actually happening and this is, this is war and the war has changed, I think it's essential for beginning to rethink the building blocks of what a kind of new movement that could take on this bipartisan support would look like. Jonathan, you and Brian also write that in an inheritance of past conflicts, much of the orientation of left activity relies on start on trying to exert uh, pressure at critical moments of emergency to stop the beginnings of traditionally declared wars. We are living in a state of permanent asymmetrical war carried out daily all over the globe. So the anti-war movement knows how to deal with traditional wars, but apparently this asymmetric warfare they don't know how to react to. Is the U.S., Jonathan, is the U.S. engaged and the West engaged in asymmetrical warfare because of the 2003 anti-Iraq war protests to avoid having an anti-war movement that is capable of world record global protests like the one in 2003? Is that one of the reasons that the United States government has switched to this asymmetrical warfare? Um, I don't know if I could say that for sure. Um, I will say part of, or at least for me, you know, and Brian can also comment, I think part of the reason why they're doing as the asymmetrical warfare uh, that we talked about is kind of like the type of enemy that, and, and we could specifically name like the war on terror, right? Uh, which is, you know, terror, like it's an idea, it's a concept, like how do you fight terror? Um, and then how do you define terror, right? And so that type of framing kind of creates the conditions where you're not going to war with the nation, right? Which will require uh, some type of invasion and like, you know, airplanes and, and boats and stuff like that. But when you're going to war with a variety of different organizations that might oppose you in various different nations, the, the type of warfare that's used uh, kind of has to be the, the drones, the assassinations um, and the more proxy wars. Um, and let's not forget, like, even before, you know, this era, the United States engaged in, you know, non, I guess, traditional forms of warfare where United States funded proxies, um, the CIA orchestrated coups, like, uh, and, and did things kind of like that, too. Uh, so it isn't necessarily a, a new thing, per se, uh, but with, you know, technology like drones and, and just different things, um, that are kind of different than the 20th century, uh, war, war looks different, you know. And Brian, as you and Jonathan point out, this U.S. imperialism support for it is bipartisan. And when things become bipartisan, they're no longer up for debate and they're unable to be voted out of office. Can we end, Brian, can we end the forever war at the ballot box? And if not, what does it say about democracy in the United States when you cannot stop war by voting, over 20 years of wars in several countries around the world simultaneously. What does it say about our state of democracy when we cannot vote war out of office? Um, I mean, I think that until we have um, a different party than the Democrats and Republicans, that it's certainly the case that we won't be able to vote war out of office. And so I think that now, as really has always been the case, building movements from below that are antagonistic against forces in power is how we can sort of exert change. Um, and so, you know, we saw that uh, in Vietnam in which, you know, against different administrations, against Democrats and against Republicans, a force was built that uh, paired with um, resistance uh, in Vietnam, resistance uh, by soldiers in Vietnam and by defecting and a massive movement here that then connected up with the, the black freedom struggle that that was able to, to end, end the war. And I think that sort of thing is what it's going to take to end war, not voting for uh, one of the two parties that both want to wage 
want to wage war uh, pretty much infinitely, even though some of the small terms of it may be bickered about among them. And Jonathan, you and Brian also write that our organizing can only benefit by being able to present the total picture in the full arsenal of tools at the disposal of the ruling class in imperialism. Presenting this total picture in its full breadth denormalizes state bullying and makes visible what are the constant, current, everyday features of U.S. imperialism. So, Jonathan, is the ruling class at war on the rest of us all of the time? Is that the violence we see daily? Is this imperialism not by nations, but by class? I mean, absolutely. I mean, capitalism, capitalist system in general is like a class war against all of us, like daily. Uh, And and that's connected to to imperialism worldwide, right? Um, I mean, kind of think about, I mean, even this pandemic, you know, I mean, and look at the way the United States even handled or didn't even handle the pandemic, um, which, you know, required international cooperation. But, you know, a lot of, you know, the United States didn't want to do that, didn't want to cooperate. I mean, the system kind of, I mean, capitalism is about competition, not cooperation. And so you have hundreds of thousands of people dead, you know, that that could have been prevented. Um, and so... I mean, global capitalism is a war on all of us, you know, Um, and even that war is, you know, you know, asymmetric, you know, affects people more um, in nations like Haiti or, you know, Central Africa or or Southern Asia than it does here. But there's still a war on us. You know, we've had over 40 years of neoliberalism, um, declining living standards for, you know, people in the United States. Um, So we didn't start the war, you know. Brian, you write that U.S. military activity is omnipresent, and so it is presence, and so is its presence in the arms trade. As of 2018, the top five weapons manufacturers made over 148 billion dollars in sales. U.S. companies' brisk arms dealing is responsible for about 40 percent of total global weapons sales. Arms deals help the U.S. facilitate proxy wars and maintain influence, all the while filling up the coffers. And you ask for a defunding, if you will, of the Pentagon, of the uh, military, of the Defense Department to have that money go to better things like social services and a safety net for the public. But to what extent does the U.S. economy now actually depend upon arms sales and exporting war? It, It would, going against military funding, be going against our own best self-interest when it comes to the economy. I mean, that assumes that we can't make anything else, you know? And so uh, during the Great Depression, the economy was restarted by retooling factories to making arms. And so in the same way, it could be retooled to make all the stuff that we need. Um, And so I think that, you know, economy is... Is, is choices. I think if we collectively owned it and we decided that we'd want to uh, use it to make, I don't know, um, vaccines for everyone and free healthcare, et cetera, um, better infrastructure, like all those things are, are possible. So I think that it's not as though something else couldn't be made. Um, I think also attached to that, I think there's this notion that, that you hear sometimes in kind of anti-war circles about the military industrial complex. And what that argument often makes is that we're at war because uh, it's profitable, because of the, the arms trade. And I think that that kind of flips the, 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 the dog and the wagon of the tail uh, metaphor, because I think it's not as though the ruling class is like, because we can make money off of arms, we have war. I think war is fought to secure influence for, for capitalist classes. And like any good capitalist, they also figure out how to make the biggest buck off of it. And that's a real happy thought. Now you know why the show's called This Is Hell. Uh, So, Jonathan, uh, you write, it is time to end the selective opposition to imperialism that has undermined the formation of a robust anti-imperialist movement for so long. That will mean developing a genuine international solidarity with struggles from below rather than apologias for competing state machines. So, Jonathan, do you mean instead of focusing on supporting Lula, 
instead support the landless workers movement. Rather than cheering on Lopez Obrador in Mexico, voicing support for the Zapatista, instead of supporting the Maduro administration, supporting all those who are still engaging in, Chavista, in the Chavista movement, which has little to nothing to do with Maduro's government, instead of supporting Biden or even Sanders, supporting the Poor People's Campaign or Sherry Honkala's Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. Do you believe the left needs to shift focus from leaders to movements. Is that the major problem right now with the left? Um, definitely, definitely. It definitely ties into that. Um, I think there is a, you know, long history of the, of this thing called campism. Um, essentially, because, you know, during 20th century socialism, you had, you know, countries like the USSR and China. And for a lot of people, they seem to be, you know, bastions of, you know, revolutionary thought and revolutionary experiments. Um, but unfortunately, what that did is that it tied the left in, you know, in the West and in other countries um, to the foreign policy of those nations. So if the USSR decided, hey, we're going to invade Eastern Europe or Afghanistan, then some people on the left would say, that's a great idea. Or, you know, when China it's explicitly capitalist, you know, there's some people on the left that say, well, they're, they're not capitalist somehow. Um, and so we definitely need to look to workers' movements around the world and people struggling against capitalism uh, in the state in their own right, um, rather than looking at people who are like in power or who are kind of saying socialism, but in praxis, you know, it's not, it's not uh, it's not being seen. And Brian, you and Jonathan also write that we must reject the campism of some dinosaurs of the left that demands that a movement against imperialism support other capitalist states. Anti-imperialist policies doesn't mean only opposing American imperialism, but opposing all forms of domination carried out by powerful nations. So, Brian, to you, what explains the lack of international leftist support for the protesters in Hong Kong who are protesting China's imperialism? Um, I mean, I think it's just it's just what what Jonathan said and what we said in the article. I think that um, unfortunately, after kind of the bottom fell out of the anti-war movement, as we described, with the left leaping into the Democratic Party, who was left holding the bag is um, you know left forces who. Um, I would characterize as Stalinist, who pair their critique of U.S. imperialism with support for, you know, like you said, China or Bashar al-Assad or Iran or Russia or these sort of places. Um, and the problem with that is that it connects the the entry into the movement with support for these despotic governments that are obviously sort of bad. And so if we're trying to build a new movement, we're trying to bring new people into organizing and into protesting for people to come into the room and to say, okay, well, then you, opposing U.S. imperialism also means someone at the front of a march praising the dictator of North Korea or saying that the Bashar al-Assad is an a anti-imperial icon. Like that's not something that is going to be attractive to people who are standing up against uh, uh, you know, for, for, for justice and sort of for, for freedom. And so I think that it doesn't take a contortionist to say, I oppose U.S. imperial action everywhere, full stop. And I also am in the side of, of working people who oppose their own ruling classes wherever they be, regardless of whatever foreign policy stance that capitalist state has, if that makes sense. But, but Jonathan, uh, even the left in Hong Kong, embrace the idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend by waving U.S. flags and carrying banners and having chants praising President Trump. Is the enemy of my enemy is my friend an obfuscation of imperialism, a global problem for the left everywhere, not just here in the United States, but even with the protesters in Hong Kong? Yeah, this problem isn't, you know, just domestic, uh, but definitely like a uh, you know, it's a, it's a more universal issue. Um, and I, and, and it does, like you said, obfuscates like, you know, the, the entirety of the system, um, and how the system works. Right. Um, because I mean, Donald Trump is not a, is <laughs> not a great ally. I mean, he was a bar barely a good ally to even people within the Republican party. Uh, and so kind of like looking at things from kind of like a narrow point of view will kind of 
end you up in those situations where it's like, okay, well, we're against this group, so let's align ourselves with this group. And I think socialist internationalism means, you know, not picking any rulers, not picking uh, the side of any ruling class um, and building solidarity with, you know, those of us who struggle against the system. Could I add something to that? Sure, sure. go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I think this is a a super excellent key question. Um, And I think that it pertains to um, uh, the example of Syria very clearly, um, because in the Syrian revolution, the folks who opposed and risked their lives and died um, uh, against Bashar al-Assad, you know, a large section of the revolution said, oh, well, we're going to look for backing uh, for the U.S. and for the Gulf states, and that's how we're going to achieve our, our, our freedom. But that wasn't everyone. And so instead, that there were, there were organizers, leftists, dissidents, organizing in local coordinating committees who opposed both U.S. involvement and uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad and, and, and Russian imperialism. And those folks had no allies because there's no states who, who would back them. And so like those folks need allies. And building this international um, sort of forces from below that that see that that you know don't ally with 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 us and don't ally with china et cetera et cetera is like i think super essential well, but Jonathan, let me ask you about uh, the difficulties with making that an alliance. You write how 10% of all U.S. factory output goes into weapons manufacturing. In time of impending climate cat- catastrophe, the U.S. military is the largest single consumer of hydrocarbons and consequently the biggest polluter in the world. Historically, the U.S. labor movement has aided and abetted U.S. interests abroad, which has contributed to undermining the labor movement's strength domestically. Does, Jonathan, does the U.S. labor movement have to prioritize something else over jobs? Does it have to prioritize its impact on climate change or, as you argue, imperialism? And would that hurt jobs? Um, I think that kind of like dichotomy only exists within the capitalist system just because under capitalism, you got to compete for jobs. Or it's this idea of like, uh, you know, there's a finite amount of jobs and it's like, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't necessarily uh, believe that uh, and it's only true so in so in so far as uh, the the way the system is designed, where companies will you know threaten. Okay, well we're going to move our business elsewhere. Uh, we're going to move our business uh, overseas. Um, and so I don't I don't think there is a dichotomy. I think in the long run um, it will be beneficial for you know people in general, especially dealing with climate change. I mean, if we want to you know be prosperous as a species. And if we don't want to continue destroying the earth, we're going to have to deal with it. Um, America isn't going to be, uh, isn't going to, we aren't going to suffer as much as, you know, people in poorer countries, uh, but eventually like everyone on this planet will be affected in some way by climate change. Uh, and so we have to look at it from that perspective. Brian, you write, if we understand that imperialism is not purely military domination and are able to connect it to the economic weapons of tariffs, trade deals, sanctions, and international financial institutions, we can strategically integrate the immediate cancellation of the debt held by the Global South as an anti-imperial demand. Brian, is the end of debt the end of imperialism? Um, I don't think the end of debt is the end of imperialism entirely. I think that the the levers of debt are used to def- definitely discipline the global south, but I think that alongside of debt, there's also uh, trade deals, tariffs, you know, those sorts of things, free trade zones that aren't necessarily entirely a debt. But I think that the removal of debt, which is used as kind of the stick, if you will, for economies of the global south, would be a tremendous step forward, needed, and really the only just thing. But I think that 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 alone would not end uh, sort of the competition of capitalist powers, because whether or not there's debt, they're still going to want that natural resources. They're still going to want that investment. They're still going to want all the connections and profits that, that drive their choices. We have been speaking with Jonathan Ellis and Brian Bean, who co-wrote the RampantMag.com article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era. In an era of permanent war, rebuilding a movement against U.S. imperialism will require rethinking our long-held strategies. I have one last question for each of you, 
And we do this with every one of our guests, I promise. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So lucky you, Jonathan, you go first. Uh, you got you write that many assume that if the Sanders for president movement could just get Bernie elected, then the U.S. imperialist project could be reformed into a socialist foreign policy enacted by presidential executive orders. Obviously, reforms enacted by people like Sanders and Ilan Omar would have positive effects. However, the fact that the U.S. cannot be transformed from imperial dominator to anti-imperial bastion must be central to our analysis. Jonathan, why do you believe the United States cannot be transformed? Um, the state uh, is 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 the maintainer of capital. Uh, electing someone president, you know, isn't going to change the that relationship between capital and labor and and the way U.S. imperialism works. You know, so even though you know, social democracy would be much better than what we have now. You know, Sanders presidency would. I think would be a much better than a Biden it would have been better than Trump. Um, but even, you know, the politics of, you know, Sanders or uh, some of the so-called, you know, or progressive Democrats, I mean, they still frame things in a, in a nationalistic capitalist way where it's like, you know, saving American jobs or, you know, they still kind of have like this America first mentality, uh, but, you know, kind of without the explicit xenophobia. Um, but that's still an issue, right? Um, you know, especially, I mean, me kind of looking at myself as not just someone who's an American, but a human being that lives on this planet with six, seven billion other people. Uh, that kind of view is still chauvinist and it still reproduces the inequalities produced by the current capitalist order. Yeah, that internationalism is so, so important, as you both point out in the writing. And our question from hell for you, Brian, is if the U.S. cannot be transformed, is anti-imperialism a direct challenge to even an existential threat to the United States of America? Um, I hope so. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that if we understand imperialism to be competition between capitalist powers, and if we understand capitalism to be driven by competition for profits, then ending imperialism uh, is means ending capitalism. And I think that there's no reforming or redeeming of the U.S. state, and that I think that existentially um, it should no longer exist, and it should be replaced by you know, something that is actual democracy, that is, uh, you know, our, our workers themselves controlling our own destinies. Well, Brian, I appreciate you padding my FBI file, and I'm looking forward to the agents playing this tape back to me in the very near future. Glad to help. So, thank you very much. It really helped. It kind of just wraps up the whole narrative in my file together, so I, I really appreciate it. Jonathan Ellison, Brian Bean co-wrote the RampantMag.com article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era. Go check out the article. There's far more to it than what we've discussed on the show today. Jonathan and Brian, this has been a fantastic discussion. You guys are really great. Thanks so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much, Chuck. Yeah, you're welcome. Peace. Thanks. Take care. Bringing you... Bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, so what's the name of your podcast? So what's the name of your podcast? Richard, do you have more answers from our listeners to this week's question from hell? Yes, sir, I do. Sweet. Let's hear him. Let's see. John K. says, cancel this. <laughs> And I, don't, I don't know why my, uh, my background music is uh, suddenly non-existent here. I can hear it. Oh, it's just so soft. <laughs> You're so upset about it. <laughs> Jeff G says, uh, oh, sorry. I think this was a, a reply from the other one yesterday. All right. So we're going to move up to Ronaldo says, boring personal antidotes and vocal fry. <laughs> That is a lot of podcasts. Chris L. says, I'm hammered. Why aren't you? <laughs> Mason B. says, local news and world opinion. All right. Chris A. says, this week in Effery mitigation. <laughs> okay. 
And Austin says, Critical Mace Theory, a race trader's guide to personal defense in the age of strange and unprecedented time. (laughs) Nice. That's all we have. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet them to us. You can email us your responses. But we must have your reply by the end of tomorrow's show, following the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, when we will be announcing this week's winner of whatever piece of merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise, our T-shirts, our tote bags, our coffee mugs, our trucker caps, our winter hats, the flash drive of the history of the 21st century here on This Is Hell so far. You can find all of that right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And the winner of this week's question from hell can choose from that merchandise, whichever piece they want. And there was breaking news related to our discussion on Monday about the corruption charges against former Brazilian President Lula, which had been dropped. Brian Muir, Monday's guest, is now reporting. Quote, in a landmark ruling on March 23rd, 2021, yesterday, the Brazilian Supreme Court second working group ruled that Sergio Moro, the judge who imprisoned former President Lula and opened the door for the presidential victory of Jair Bolsonaro, later serving as his justice minister, is suspect of felony judicial partiality. So, this means... The U.S. application of lawfare, weaponizing a nation's legal system to overthrow democratically elected leaders within that nation and arrest those who you do not want running for president. The U.S. policy that even the Pope, even the freaking Pope condemned, but we will not discuss here in the U.S. media, may actually be coming to an end. So I guess the U.S. media will never have to actually report on the lawfare and how the U.S weaponized justice to overthrow democracy around the world. Hey, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time? 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Mrs. We Don't Know. (laughs) I guess I found out (laughs) right beforehand. It's going to be Max Zerngast. Max is going to be replying. actually going to be returning to This Is Hell. He's been on the show several times in the past. You can find all of his inter- our interviews with him. Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. Just search that name over at thisishell.com. He's going to be on to talk about his Jacobin article, Turkey is trying to ban the socialist pro-Kurdish HDP party. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream at the same place, as well as shared on social media. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Excellent job, Richard. Thanks to Jonathan and Brian and Richard and, of course, Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. And special thanks to listener Zachary O, who went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and showed his appreciation for This Is Hell. Thanks, Zachary. We really, really appreciate your very kind support. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I'm a white dude, but keep in mind I am also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.